I'm going to open us with a word of prayer right now, and then we will jump right into our teaching if I can find my notes. There they are. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as a part of this local fellowship to encourage one another and to be strengthened by one another. I pray, Lord, for each one of us today to be ministered to by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that we will feel the love that you have for us through our communications with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we'll be able to be a testimony to others today of your goodness and your grace. I pray for the time in your word this morning in Sunday school. I pray that you'll help me to be clear and accurate. And I pray for our time in the main worship service this morning with Pastor Steve. And then again tonight that we will have ears to hear and be attentive as he opens up the word of God and proclaims it to us. Lord, we pray for any who are visiting today that are anywhere on our campus and in our main service that may not know you. I pray that the gospel will be proclaimed, but also pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ who may visit with us, that they would feel welcome and loved as they come and join us in worship. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. And this morning we are going to finish, as I said, the section on wives. And as you recall, if you've been here over the last several weeks, over a month actually, there's been multiple messages dealing with this little section that Peter has put in Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, dealing with the role of wives. And obviously, as I've already alluded to, it's going to also deal with the role of husbands, And this focus on marriage is really foundational to the church. Marriage was the very first human relationship God created. And so understanding our roles and living out our roles is critical if we want to project to a lost and dying world what God intended through marriage. And in this entire book, even our roles in marriage as husbands and wives, it's reflective of the broader principle where Peter has told us, be holy as God is holy. In fact, you could summarize this. There's also a phraseology, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, which I've read many times, 1 Peter 2.12, and that really sort of is the framework for this long discussion of which the roles of wives and husbands is a part. Peter talks about keeping our behavior excellent in relation to the government. We submit. We spend a long time talking about that. Keeping our behavior excellent in the workplace. It's the master-servant relationship in Scripture. The analogous situation for us as employer-employee, we're supposed to submit to our employers even if they're terrible employers. And as we think through those difficult ideas of how do we submit when our hearts naturally are independent and rebellious and we don't want to submit, particularly if someone that we're required to submit to is ungodly or not pursuing the things of the Lord. Peter put before us Jesus' example, which, which really trumps everything because Jesus showed us how to deal with injustice. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, God the Son on earth submitted himself to the will of God the Father and entrusted himself to God the Father. And that's our example. And so when we get into the section that we're dealing with now on wives, and it says, in the same way... There's an aspect where in the same way we submit in these other circumstances, this direction is given to wives. But there's another sense in which this is saying in the same way that Christ dealt with every situation appropriately, you wives in the same way deal with it. In fact, if you look down at verse 7, we're not there yet, but it says you husbands in the same way. Again, it's pointing back to what Christ established for us. So as we've been going through these first six verses of chapter 3, which are focused on directions for Christian wives, I've broken it down and we've just been going through and looking at marks of a godly wife. Now I'm going to read this section in its entirety. I'm not going to do a review today of all of our other points, but I am at least going to read to you the points. But follow along. I'm going to read beginning at... Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read this whole section. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. As I indicated, the outline for this has just been looking at marks of a godly wife. The first thing is a godly wife, she's willing to trust the Lord, and that just follows in the footsteps of Jesus. In the same way Jesus entrusted himself, a godly wife will entrust herself. She is willing to trust the Lord. Second, she's willing to submit to her husband. This is a challenge because Peter was specifically addressing many women who had unbelieving husbands. It's wrong to think that this only applies in certain circumstances. This is the duty of every Christian wife. She's willing to submit to her own husband. Number three, she cares about her husband's soul. If her husband's an unbeliever, she wants him one to the gospel. Number four, the fourth mark, she's willing to let her life be her primary witness. They may be one without a word. That doesn't mean a wife never speaks, but in the context that Peter is talking about, these husbands have heard the gospel. It's just a matter they've rejected it. So her primary witness at that point is how she lives her life. And then the last time I taught, we covered two additional marks. The first is that she's not consumed with her external appearance. She's not consumed with her external appearance. Do a little bit more review here. But Peter was talking about a common thing in that day where women dressed to call attention to themselves. So he said, your adornment, what you put on for beauty, must not be merely external, 
braiding the hair. It was an elaborate, fancy hairstyles that took hours to put together, designed to attract attention. Wearing gold jewelry. Again, this isn't putting on a wedding ring or a bracelet or even earrings. This was dolling yourself up so that you would shine and everybody would turn to you when you walked in a room. The same thing about putting on dresses. This isn't a condemnation of wearing clothes, of course. It's the flashiness and the desire that the reason you're doing this is just so everybody will ooh and ah and say, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she wonderful? Peter was just saying, look, don't focus all of your energies on the outside. That, that's not the critical thing. He's not saying you can't look nice. He's not saying you can't do your hair. He's not saying you can't wear jewelry. He's not saying you can't put on nice clothes. What he's saying is if that's what consumes you, then you're off track. There's even an overture in this of perhaps a, a Christian wife who's married to an ungodly man is trying to get his attention. The whole point is don't even focus all your energies on that. Can you look nice for your husband? Of course you can. Nothing wrong with that. Peter's not condemning that. What he's saying, though, is if you think the way to influence the world is just by your external appearance, you're, you're missing the boat. That should not be your sole focus, your primary focus. Again, that is speaking to our culture today, but it's speaking to every culture because we are prideful people. We like attention. We want the focus on us. And in this context, it's a good lesson for a godly wife today. Again, don't focus all your energies and efforts on external appearances. But not only she's not consumed with her external appearance, the sixth mark of a godly wife was this. She prioritizes her inner character. She prioritizes her inner character. Peter said, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. But what he means is let your adornment be from the inside out. Imperishable quality of a general and quiet spirit. Unlike our beauty, which will fade, if you develop godly character on the inside, that doesn't fade away. That doesn't go away. If anything, it grows. It continues. Ultimately, it's a similar idea that a godly wife is trying to witness to her husband so that they may be one without a word, meaning he sees your behavior and he realizes there's a transformed life. It's a similar idea here. Your adornment should be the outgrowth of that transformed heart. It's a behavior that produces a gentleness and a quietness so that you're not loud and boisterous and kicking in doors and always angry and militant. No, it's a Christ-likeness. It's a reflection of the Spirit of God within you. Now, again, that's sort of the backdrop of everything so far. And today, we're going to finish this section, and there's going to be two additional marks of a godly wife. I said when I started, I didn't know how many marks. Now I know there's eight. That's exactly the number. <laughs> Unless I retaught it, which I could come up with 10 or 12. So... But the next mark of a godly wife is this, and this is our new material. She is focused on God's approval rather than man's. She is focused on God's approval rather than man's. And it comes back to a little clause at the end of verse 4. Looking again at verse 4, it says, But let it be the hidden person in the heart. Again, this is your adornment. Let it be the hidden person in the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit 
Which is precious in the sight of God? Which is precious in the sight of God? A little clause like that, as I think about it, as it does so many times, it really sums up the crux of the issue. Who ultimately are you living for, ladies? Who are you living for? Peter has laid out a course of action for women that even in its day was countercultural. It was different. He was telling women to live differently than all the other women around them in many respects. And that's still the case today when we come to a text like this. I alluded to this last week, and I talked about it in a little bit more detail, but you know it from common observance. Our society is obsessed with the external. Our society is obsessed with whether people like us. To be shamed publicly, to be made fun of publicly, is the ultimate rejection. It seems in our society, that's really the worst thing you can do to anybody. Again, this is one of those times where, for whatever reason, it just passed me by. It's not because I was so foresight and seeing things, but I don't use social media. But our society does, and that governs everything. If you watch the news even a little bit, what you see is in an instant, social media builds people up and they become famous, and then on the other hand, it tears them down in two seconds later. And it's almost like a seesaw, and you see people literally committing suicide because social media has turned against them. And it was so damaging to them that in their own minds they couldn't tolerate life because of that humiliation. And quite often, when you look into those cases, it's because of some superficial thing. They were making fun of how somebody looked. Or rebuking them for having views that didn't line up with the social norms of our day. So Peter, in his focus on internal character and telling wives to submit to their husbands and live in this quiet way is telling you, ladies, to do something that absolutely flies in the face of everything around you. Oddly enough, though, it's not just out there on the outside of the walls. I've been a Christian, I believe, genuinely since 1993. I think Lakeside is the fourth church that Debbie and I have been members of. And we, of course, have attended many other churches of visiting and doing things like that. But women face a lot of that same type of pressure within the church. You're supposed to look a certain way when you come to church. I've been in places, and this is true statements, and I've been in places in all over America and all over the world, where you would think a woman upon joining a church was given a manual that said, here's what you should look like every week. Because <laughs> the hairstyles have to be a certain way. And the clothing has to be a certain way. And the length, there's not somebody with a tape measure literally, but you know visually they got tape measures. Where's that below the knee? The point is, even within the church, you can all of a sudden build up a legalistic set of rules 
that even though we say are designed to immunize us from the outside, what we've done is we've just created another set of external rules within the church. And we're still fixated on external appearance, but it's for a godly reason. Or so we would think. Every woman has to have long hair, or every woman has to wear a dress, or every dress or skirt has to reach past the calf a certain length, or you can only wear high heels, or you're never allowed to wear high heels, or you can only wear a certain type of makeup, or you can't wear that type of makeup, and on and on it can go. Wear this if you're godly, wear other things if you're ungodly. Now, is there appropriate dress for church? I think so. I think we understand it. But the point is, Peter was pushing aside any type of cultural expectation. He was getting to the heart of the matter, which is don't be so caught up in all these externals that you neglect what really matters. And if you focus on what really matters, even though it won't make you popular on social media, and any, even though it might not fit you in with certain legalistic groups... If you do that, it's precious in the sight of God. It's of great worth. It finds God's favor. If we're thinking clearly, ladies, what could be more important than that? What could be of greater value than to know that the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who sent his son to redeem you, is pleased with you? To hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant, should be always our motivation. And ladies, when you think about what you present to the world, your adornment, do you want to pursue what will get you likes on social media, or do you want to pursue what's precious in the sight of God? It's interesting. It's very clear from Scripture, God always prioritizes the inner person rather than the external. There's phraseology that had to do with God ultimately choosing his man in the Old Testament, but it's a familiar passage, I think, in terms of concept. But 1 Samuel 16.7, 1 Samuel 16.7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ladies, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to forego the approval of men? And I don't mean literal men, I mean men and women. Am I willing to forego the approval of the society in which I find myself? Am I willing to forego the approval of my peer groups? Am I willing to forego the approval of those who always want to give me advice? Am I willing to forego the approval of all of them to receive the favor of God? That's the ultimate issue. And a godly wife should be focused on that. It should be enough that God approves of you. Because I can tell you, if you've done everything that's already been said and you happen to be married to a, an ungodly person or even a husband who is not the greatest, you'll find plenty of people telling you, what are you doing? Don't be a doormat. That's foolishness. Stand up for yourself. Assert your rights. 
the final mark of a godly wife. And this one encompasses two verses, but I think it will be very easy to follow. She follows the example of godly women. She follows the example of godly women. Beginning at verse 5, I'm going to reread verse 5 and 6. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. A godly woman has examples she can follow. I don't think you'll find them generally on Instagram or Facebook. But they're here. For in this way in former times. He's speaking of the Old Testament era. The time before Christ. And he's making it clear that what he is calling Christian women to do is not something brand new. He's telling these women to focus on their inner beauty and to submit to their husbands. And what he's setting before them is the fact that, look, this has been going on long before you and you can do it. Who were these women? He refers to them as holy women. These were Old Testament saints. There's not a separate classification of though they were super women. They're just women who hoped in God. Who hoped in God. It's another way of saying they had faith. They trusted in the Lord. These were the true Old Testament followers of the Lord. I really think this ties into, and it's a similar picture of Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith. And in verse 12 where it talks about the great cloud of witnesses, this is the similar type of appeal. Christian wives have historical references to which they can look and say, you know what, this has always been God's plan, it's still God's plan, I can follow And he's saying, they did this. They adorned themselves from the heart. And here's the tie-in so that we don't think that the adornment is something separate from submission. Submission is a part of the adornment. He says, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. In other words, that inner transformation of the heart, that inner character change manifests itself in part through a willingness to submit to a husband. As I read and as God said to Samuel, God sees the heart. God cares about the heart. Submission is a reflection of the hidden person of the heart. I know from my own observation, I've seen women who lived in remarkably difficult circumstances who still followed the Lord. And people would marvel. Say, wow. But it comes from the focus on the heart. Again, Peter wasn't talking about a new subject with adornment. It all fits together. It's not either or, it's both and. It all runs and makes a comprehensive whole. But it does provide a measuring stick 
for a Christian wife. If you're not submitting to your husband, then you just know up front you don't have that gentle and quiet spirit. If you're not willing to submit to your husband, you're not following the example of these holy women who hoped in God. If you're not submissive to your husband, you're lacking something in that hidden person of the heart. And you're certainly not following the example that Christ set. Over the years, I've done a lot of counseling. I've done a lot of counseling with individuals, but I've done more marital counseling than anything else. Certainly, I've done premarital counseling where you're talking to people who are still excited and ready to get married, but but the majority of the counseling I've done are people who are having problems. I actually don't recall a situation where a couple who was just living, both of them were living for the Lord, came to me for counsel. Why? Because they're not really having conflicts. But I can't tell you the number of times that married people have come in, and I normally do something like this. I try and talk to both of them. They're both sitting there. But one of the first things I do as I'm diagnosing the problems they're having, and I can tell you up front, generally people are not very good at actually relaying what the real issues are. So I try and do with my old lawyer self some investigative prying and poking to see what really is going on. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've asked the wife sitting there, how are you doing spiritually? I'm doing well. Good times with the Lord. Following along. Or I've asked the husband, I'm doing well. You know, I'm active with the men's study and I'm here on a regular basis and I'm listening to sermons while I'm driving. So you're doing well. Say, so yeah, I'm growing. Following the Lord. Love Lakeside. Love Pastor Steve. Boy, he's really helping me. How's your marriage? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> terrible. She is... Blah, 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 blah. Well, you would not believe him. He... Blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what they just told me? All the first stuff they said, they're deceived. They're not growing in the Lord. They're not walking with the Lord. Because on a fundamental issue of obedience, they're not even trying. And since we're dealing with the section on wives, and I'm going to be dealing with husbands in two weeks, but dealing with the section on wives, it's very simple. If you've got a rebellious attitude towards your husband, you've got a rebellious attitude towards God. Period. If you've got a refusal in your heart to submit to your husband, and I have heard more justifications for a refusal to follow this command than just about anything else, then really what you've done is you've contradicted the Word of God and the character of God. Because you've said, I know better. God made those rules for all the other people, but he didn't understand the husband I have. So understand, being a submissive wife is a measuring stone of whether you have the right hidden qualities in your heart. 
And the men of the Old Testament era were not uniquely different than the men of today. In fact, one of the early testimonies to me that the Bible was truly written by God was that it didn't hide the wicked sinfulness of even godly men. A hero writing his own story covers over those things. Do you think if David was writing from the flesh, we'd ever hear about Bathsheba? His adultery, his murder. So it's not as though these women had the special category of good husbands and you're just stuck with the 2018 models. These women were married to sinners just like you are. And they were able to submit. And he holds up a particular example in verse 6. He's held up women who hoped in God in general. And then he gives a specific example as a reference. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, if you want to struggle with everything, think about this for a bit. Because now that brings a word into submission that we don't like to put there. Which is obey. Because if we're very, very clever in our brains, we can come up with a way to make submission mean something other than what it actually is. But Peter's very clear. Submission includes obedience. Never to the point of disobeying God's word. We talked about that at length. If your husband tells you to sin, you don't submit or obey that. But Sarah obeyed her husband. Now, I was reminded as I was studying this, a lot of different passages, it was not easy to follow Abraham. He's a heroic figure. Certainly within Judaism, he's the ultimate pinnacle, the patriarch, the father of the nation. And of course, Abraham had faith. We'll see him in heaven. But if you look at what he did on earth, it was not always wonderful. Now, some submission that Sarah did was just the difficulty of walking by faith, not by sight. She was entrenched in their home, and at one point God said, go, where are we going? Don't know. God said, he'll show me. That's tough, but she went. But you think of the two different occasions where Abraham came to an area with his wife and said, look, don't tell anybody you're my husband. I'm going to lie about it. And then you throw into the mix the whole mess with Hagar. And now you've got different things going on. And not only that, but you had these outlandish promises from God. At one point, Sarah even overheard the angelic beings talking about things and she laughed. None of this means Sarah was always perfect. None of these things mean that Sarah always did everything right. But what it does tell you is that from a heart perspective, Sarah hoped in God. And the general attitude of her heart is, I'm going to listen to what Abraham says. Her ultimate heart attitude was to submit to her husband. Even to the point of following what was clear in that culture of the day and referring to him with a term of respect. Now, I was married on January 4th of 1992. 
So that's 26 plus years. Debbie has never called me Lord, and I don't expect her to start. (laughs) And Debbie's a very godly woman. I think this is not suggesting that all wives have to suddenly start addressing their husbands with some designation. The issue was, in that day, that was just a term of respect. And if you look at what Ephesians says, Ephesians 5, the last half of verse 33, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, I think this is what's being portrayed here. Sarah showed her husband respect. Sarah was a key person to be putting out there for this because while Abraham was viewed as the patriarch of the nation, in essence, Sarah was viewed as the mother of God's people. There's a reference, for example, in Isaiah 51.2 that sort of paints this picture. It says, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. In other words, it's just this picture that they were the ones from whom all of God's family spread. And that's what Peter is alluding to when he says, and you have become her children. He's just putting her in this historical position as the beginning of the household of faith. And what he's saying is you assume your position in that, not through learning your way, but you evidence that that's where you are when you live as he's calling you to live. He's in no way saying you become a child of God if you do all these things. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. This is just salvation by faith is not being contradicted. But what he's saying is if you've genuinely... Come to faith, and if you genuinely begin to try and implement and obey all that God commanded, including submitting to your husbands, then you fit within this family of godly women who've gone before you. In other words, you share the spiritual lineage of this godly woman, Sarah, if you emulate her behavior and other godly women of times past and submit and obey and respect your own husband. Now, we've got that little clause at the end of this. And it says, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And if you're reading along, it almost seems a little bit jarring. But I think this is one of those times where the scriptures just acknowledges reality. You know, step back for a second. The big picture, we're kind of zeroing in here. But the big picture is Peter is saying that, look, Christian wives, even if your husband's an unbeliever, you submit. It's always scary to have to follow someone who's not following the Lord. Why is submission to the government hard? It'd be easy if you have a benevolent Christian dictator. It really would be because they're following the Lord. But to submit to an ungodly government, that's hard. That's when we're ready to protest and storm the gates. And if you work for a believer, submitting to them is not so difficult. But if you work... For a wicked unbeliever who's only out for a buck and it's all about me, it's hard to submit. It's frightening. And if you're married to the prince of husbands, the wonderful poster child for godliness, in the hall of fame in heaven there's six husbands and yours is there. it's a little bit easier to submit. But if you're married to the rest of us, it's hard. 
Peter is probably referencing a particular proverb. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26 says this, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Here's the ultimate point. When God calls you to submit, walking by faith, apart from trusting in God, is a nightmare. It is scary. But if you can trust in the Lord, knowing that He's there, that you're living not for the approval of everyone else, not even the approval of people at Lakeside, you're living for the approval of God, and you're trusting in Him, you don't have to be terrified of your life. In fact, you shouldn't be frightened by any fear because God cares for you and loves you. And if He calls you to submit in an impossible situation, He ultimately is going to be responsible for the outcome. I can tell you the hardest thing for me in marital counseling, the very hardest thing is when I look a wife in the eye and I know in my heart her husband is trouble, I tell her to submit. Here's what's hard about that. It's easy. I can show you from the scriptures. The hard part is I have to tell her to submit and I also have to tell her it may not change her husband. He may never be different. And as bad as he is, he may be exactly the same 30 years from now. And my counsel doesn't change. Why? Because I don't have anything else to say except what God said. And that's hard. I'd love to be able to promise something. Well, if you do this for six months, well, there's in First Fleshalonians, it's going to change something. <laughs> but that really is just me and my flesh. I want that. I want an assurance that if I tell you to do this, it'll all be sunshine and unicorns and rainbows. But God's calling you wives to submit with no promise that your husband will ever change. He may. It may be what God uses to win your husband to the gospel. But I can't promise that. I think often in those circumstances about the godly man, the Apostle Paul, who prayed three times, Lord, take this away. And why did God say, no, no. That's it, I'm enough. Godly wife, that's the key for you. That's God's enough. You obey. Don't get carried away with your fear of man or your fear of what your sister or your mother or your aunt or your best friend or your Facebook group will say when you submit anyway. You keep submitting. Trust God. That's what Jesus did in the worst of circumstances. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's all you have for you, ladies. Do the same thing. Fear God more than men, trust Him, and know you have good company. And it shouldn't just be with ancient examples. You can look around today and see godly examples for you to follow. Let me encourage you, if you're trying to walk in obedience and submit in a tough circumstance, look out for, identify, and approach some of the godly women that exist in this church. 
It's an interesting passage in Titus chapter 2. Many ladies are familiar with it. There was a ministry in California at one of our churches. It was Titus 2. Beginning in verse 3, verses 3 to 5, it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. There's a lot more at stake than your own personal reputation. It's about honoring God with your life and trusting God even if He has sovereignly placed you in a difficult, difficult circumstance. It's a lot to process, ladies. And again, if you're not currently married, don't think that this has no applicability to you. Think about these things the next time someone asks you your opinion. Think about these things before you give counsel to a woman that you think is being treated unfairly. It's interesting that I have heard more bad counsel given to wives in difficult circumstances by people who identify as Christians than by unbelievers. Be careful the counsel you give your daughters and your granddaughters and your sisters and your nieces if they come to you. And if this has been hard teaching for you ladies, just be comforted that in two weeks it's the husband's turns. <laughs> and as direct as I have been with women, I'll try and be as direct with the husbands. But for now, I'm going to close this time in prayer. What God has called you to, ladies, is difficult but it's not impossible. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that in a fundamental area like marriage, you are crystal clear on the responsibilities of a godly wife. Lord, the commands you place in front of women are hard from a human standpoint. The passage that we've studied over the last few months is certainly not something that's going to be held up as an exemplar in our popular culture. In fact, Lord, the things that you say in your word are repulsive to our society. And I know that the women in our church, my sisters in Christ, are bombarded with messages, sometimes even from people identifying as Christians, they're bombarded with messages that go against your clear teaching. I pray that you would strengthen every wife in this room to live for you more than anything else. I pray that you'll help the Christian wives here in our midst to follow what you've called them to do and I pray, Lord, for those who aren't married right now to be able to recognize that even when someone approaches them and they have opportunity to give counsel, they still need to make certain that what they say 
matches up with your word rather than just the popular or common experiences of people. Lord, you call us to walk by faith, not by sight. I pray that my sisters in Christ will be able to do that. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.